0: Hi, I'm Mary Lyons, the Wealth Woman.
1: And I'm Eric Alexander with Acorn Grove.
0: Welcome to the big wealth podcast. If you are just joining us, then you missed a really good podcast last week. Uh, Let let me clue you in on what we were talking about, because what we're going to do today is a continuation of what we did last time. So um, if you're listening to this, we're going to make sure that it makes sense. If you're just jumping in right now and you haven't heard the other one, but we're going to try and make sure that we tie them together because this is part two of a three part series. So I'm going to share my screen real quick if you're watching this. If you are just listening, I will make sure that we go through everything that is on the screen. But last, uh, I guess it was this summer, at some point this summer, Nerd Wallet released an article, and the article was entitled, What is the Average Retirement Savings by Age?, So we're going to go through what those numbers are. We're going to talk about the median retirement savings by age, by household as well. And then we are going to talk about what it would take to get from that point to end up retiring with $100,000 of income every year, not including Social Security. So this is, uh, I guess, a how-to manual to some degree. Keep it totally educational. None of this is advice. Uh, but we want you to understand the concept so eric why don't you walk us through the size of the average retirement savings balance by age group
1: yeah and the and the way we put this together is by family or the way the article is written is this is the average retirement savings balance amount by at, at a couple or a family level so if you're under 35 the average retirement savings is right around $30,000 30,170 If you're somewhere between 35 years old and 44 years old, your average retirement savings balance is just a shade under 132, so $131,950. If you're somewhere between 45 and 54, and this is going to be the topic today of if you're in your 50s, what does this look like? Your average balance is right at 254, a little over 254. And if you get into your 60s, so you're somewhere between 55 and 64, the average balance is right around 408, $408,420 to be exact. And if you're over 65, 65 to 74, your retirement savings balance is just a shade over 126, $426,070. And so this is that that breakout. And one of the things that Mary talked about in that last podcast was this is the average. And if you guys see averages, you know that we're not giant fans of it. The average is the people in the the account that are 30 years old and have $2 million, and the people in the the average where they walk in and they've got $0, and so they're just doing the average in the middle, but the median is actually a much, much smaller number, uh, and so I'm just going to pull out the two that, that are based on what we talked about. For thirty under 35, the average was right around 30K. The median, which is sort of a, a better version of that kind of mean point, that that actual fat part of the bell curve is $13,000. So less than half. Ooh, I know. And if you're in your fifties, 45 to 54, the average was 254 K the median is a hundred. And so it's way less than half. Yeah. We use the average.
0: We use the average. We're being generous. We're being generous here in this. And, uh, I think that this is kind of an interesting starting point, because if you have 30,000 being average around age 30, right, you're probably not really saving all that much money for the next 20 years to get to a point where your balance is 254, not as much as, you know, perhaps you should be saving. I think when we were looking at the projection on the 30 year old in order to even have a chance at tracking You had to be close to what? $2 million in a 401k. By the time you're Um, 65
1: yeah, or 67. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. So um, let's just jump right in and kind of walk through the numbers. So again, if you're watching this on either YouTube or wherever uh, the podcast is also posted with video, I think Apple has it as well. um, You can actually see what we're looking at, but I'm going to try and make sure we go through all the details. So even if you just have audio, you're going to be in good shape. We're going to look at someone who is 50 years old, and we are assuming that they are going to retire at age 67. So they have 17 years until they get to retirement. We've assumed that they are in a 25% tax bracket for our scenario. And, ooh, I was playing around with this, and I apparently changed one of the numbers. We are using a 7% rate of return. Now, some of you listening might argue that the market has averaged a return that's higher than that. Frequently, we hear 10% bandied about. Just for comparison's sake, the software programs that we use as we are actually building out different scenarios for clients cap us at a 10% return. It will not let us put anything higher than that because it is non-compliant at an industry level. So I do find it to be interesting that sometimes that sort of a financial... entertainer, let's call it, will use numbers that are higher than 10% when professionals in the industry can't. Um, so 7% is a good number. It's not too conservative and it's not too aggressive, but in our line of work, we find that, uh, less money is always a problem and more money almost never is. And I think, was it Biggie that said, mo money, mo problems. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you, that's never been the case. When I help a client end up with more money, they don't ever complain about problems. Right. So.
1: And, and the corollary to that is no widow complained that the death benefit check was too big. So,
0: right. You know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I don't know why I laughed at that. That's actually really morbid. I'm sorry. I'm going to walk that back before I get canceled. (laughs) Um, So here's what we're going to look at. When we talk about distribution rates, safe distribution rates, if you've been a listener for a long time, you know that the number I'm about to say is 3% is the safe withdrawal rate. If you don't believe me, you can Google what is the safe withdrawal rate in retirement, and you will find the consensus across the industry about 90% percent of the time is that the safe withdrawal rate is between three and four percent right now the reason that people use four and three almost interchangeably is that if you were looking at income creation from a normal retirement age 65 67 and you were looking at making sure that you have income until age 80 the likelihood of success at a four percent withdrawal rate and a three percent withdrawal rate are pretty similar Right. But if you are looking at your life potential and you are taking a normal retirement age of 65, 67 and doing a projection out to age 100, now you're going to start to see big differences in the likelihood of success. If you were looking at roughly a 4% withdrawal rate on a traditional portfolio, 50% equity, 50% bonds, and you're dealing with inflation and all that jazz, Uh, 4% has almost, what, a 25% failure rate for some of the studies that we've looked at. And so you're basically saying, if you say that that number is okay, you're saying that one out of every four market scenarios leads to you going broke in retirement. Before you run out of birthdays. Yeah. And I I think about that like getting on an airplane. If one out of every four planes that took off crashed, I'm not going to fly So we can't trick ourselves into thinking, but it's okay with my retirement income. Right. So when we look at this, 3% is a number that will give you roughly a greater than 90% chance of success, meaning that you have income every year of retirement up to age 100. um, And it will do that almost across all portfolio allocations. So that 3% number is kind of the industry accepted standard. Uh, And the reason that that matters is because we're going to do a projection of where do you end up? What does your balance look like? And if you are taking a 3% withdrawal, how much income will that actually give you? So we're going to do an analysis of what does it take uh, to create that income if you are doing things the conventional way. And if you are willing to be open-minded and shift your focus away from net worth into income creation, so that income is your primary priority because that's what you need in order to replace your lifestyle when you retire, um, then you have other options that are available to you. So Eric, do you wanna walk us through this first scenario?
1: Yeah, this first scenario is really what we would call the baseline standpoint. This says that I start out with, $254,720, $254,720, which was the the number that we got out of the article for a 50-year-old. And what it says is, I'm going to start out with that money, and then for the rest of my life, I'm never going to save another dime again. So this is, okay, from this point starting, everything goes badly. This is all you got to start with. What are you going to end up with? And what it's doing is basically doing a future value calculator, $254,000 at a 7% rate of return for 17 years just straight linear math should get you a little over $804,000, almost 805. And that's great. It seems like a lot of money until your distribution rate looks like 3%. And $804,000 pulling 3% out a year is only about $24,000. So that's just a shade over two grand a month that you get to go live on. So that may not be enough to go live on, but at least it's a starting point. Like That's what we use as a baseline. And then anything we save on above and beyond that just makes the scenario better. But and we want to. I want to, start I want with to hit case. something.
0: I want to sit, hit something here for just a second because we yeah. didn't do this in the last one, and I think it's really important. If you if you're doing that math in your head and you were thinking, "Oh, I'm earning seven percent right now," and why are you saying I can only spend three? Because my account should be growing by four percent, right. which is the difference. What happens when you get to retirement is that you don't get 7% every single year. That's not how the stock market works. Some years you might get better than that. Other years you're going to take losses. And what happens in the years where you have losses is that not only do you lose money because of market performance, but if you are also taking a withdrawal for income, you are compounding your loss, which means you have less money working for you. And as the market begins to recover, if you are withdrawing that recovery for income, you are crippling your portfolio's ability to get back to whole. And what that means is a series of losses compounded by your withdrawals with the inability for your portfolio to recover because you are withdrawing those recoveries means you're going to deplete your portfolio over time.
1: And a fast and faster. Right.
0: Right. And so that is a very counterintuitive um, result because we tend to think in very linear pictures. And so we don't see what happens when the market doesn't give us exactly what we're planning for.
1: Yeah, well said. And and the, the way I always like to think about that is the accumulation engine, I call it the market, but the accumulation engine, the feature that makes it such a great engine is the volatility in the market. Like the right. down years of the market are amazing because those are buying opportunities. But that same feature that provided upside is the thing that kills you on the downside because it kills you on the other end, right? It's that right. volatility is what hurts you when you take money out.
0: Absolutely. You're dead on. So in this particular portfolio um, or this scenario, we assumed that this average 50-year-old United States citizen is saving $16,000 into a 401k, and they are getting a $3,000 match. So when we did the previous one, uh, the 30-year-old was putting away $6,000 and getting a 3% match. So we assume the same match they were getting before, but now they're putting more money in because they're trying to catch up or get ahead and then we also made the assumption that they were saving another $24,000 a year to some other type of investment or brokerage account. Right. And when you look at what happens if you do that kind of across the board, if I start on the retirement account and I've got 254,000 and I'm adding 16,000 to it and then my employer is giving me 3,000 to it and I'm earning 7% 17 years later, when I'm 67 and ready to retire, my retirement value is roughly a hundred, I'm sorry, one million four hundred and thirty-one thousand dollars. Right. Right. So at a three percent withdrawal rate, you can take 42,947 a year. So we'll just call that roughly $43,000, Right. And then the $24,000 a year that you're putting into another investment account at 7% has grown to be about $791,000, almost $792. Right. And if you're withdrawing from that at 3%, you have another twenty-three, almost 24000 of income per year. So if we add those numbers together, what you actually end up with is about $66,700 every year in income. That's nowhere near the $100,000 that we were hoping for in this scenario. So we're going to have to start to get smarter, more efficient uh, with the strategies that we're going to pursue. So Eric, will you walk us through
1: just a very
0: high level how these things work?
1: Sure, and one other thing to talk about on that side is it, it what we call pre-tax equivalent. If you're saving money into a, a, a regular savings account, right, that money's already been taxed, but the money going into a 401k, an IRA, has not been taxed yet. So if you look at what we call pre, pre-retirement pre or pre-tax equivalent contribution, that that couple is putting aside 48 grand a year to go get that 66k. Right. A, that's a big number. And the the number that gets bandied around, and we're gonna talk about that in the next episode is you should be saving around 10 percent of your income right and that's a horrible number because it's no basis in reality of what you should be saving but this couple is saving close to fifty thousand dollars a year just to get ready for retirement in the hopes that we get a hundred k out right um, so they're yeah, they, they have their-
0: to earn forty eight thousand dollars to save this way and produce 66 almost sixty seven thousand. that's crazy
1: right and and i think at at an emotional level i think and we talked about we had a client that talked about this yesterday i think that's the heart the reason that a lot of people have a hard time saving and doing the numbers that they should especially later on in life is that it's that juice versus the squeeze starts to become a harder conversation like wait i gotta put in 50 is it worth it yeah i gotta put in 50k to get 66. Like, how is this a, like, that doesn't seem like it's worth it. Right. And and it, yeah. it becomes a and, very hard conversation.
0: And to be clear, you have to earn the 48,000, right. In order to save on an after-tax basis or pre-tax basis, the way we just talked about. Right. You're doing that for 17 years in the hopes of creating that 66,700 for 30. Right. Right. And so I, I, 30 to 35, depending on what you do. And, and you could look at that and be like, "Well, I don't think I'm going to live that long. My grandmother did. So, you you know, you, you just never know. And sometimes even people who didn't expect to ever live that long, live longer than they thought they might because of different advances for medical technology, dietary stuff, all that kind of thing. So it's important to make sure that we can last for income potential. But I, I love the point that you're making, which is that Kali, you have to work really hard to produce that, Is it actually worth it at that point?
1: Yeah. So, And I would argue it is, but it's emotionally, it feels like a beating.
0: It is a beating. And honestly, this is why I think when we run into people that are in their 50s, especially their later 50s, and they know they're behind, it almost feels like, well, there's nothing I can do about it. There's a sense of hopelessness that sometimes we encounter. Uh, The other thing that I have definitely seen is people taking astronomical amounts of risk with the capital they do have, hoping that they're going to hit it big and then they'll be okay because they don't believe there's an alternative. And so I really want to stress here that there is an alternative. It's called efficiency.
1: Right. And that's what we want to walk into.
0: efficiency.
1: Right. So let's walk through that. And so basically, you know, one of the things that we've talked about all the time and we just hit it here is efficiency is the answer that solves a lot of problems. Um, And if you think about the classic definition of economics, economics is the study of scarce resources. If I have $5 to throw around and I got to be a millionaire by Friday, I better be super stinking efficient at how all the dollars are moving through, right? I got to make them work all well. And so what we did in this model is we said, all right, well, we're going to have an accumulation engine. We're going to have the market, but we also need to have a distribution engine and they need to be in balance with one another. And you talked about this in the last podcast, and I thought you did a great job at it, that the optimal income comes when your accumulation engine and distribution engine are at balance. If you have too much of one or too much of the other, you're on the sl- you're on the other end of those curves. You're not getting as much income as you could.
0: Yeah, you're either giving up rate of return or you're giving up spending rate. Right. Right. You, when you're in balance, you're not giving up either.
1: Right, exactly. And so what we did is we left basically the 401k contribution alone. So $16,000 is still going into the IRA, the 401k, and we're still getting the match at 3k. So nothing changed on that side of it, right? The, the running joke is when people are handing out free money, we want to get in that line and make sure it's, we're getting all that we can get. So that number really came to that, that 1.4 million, just like we talked about in the earlier scenario. And all we did on that scenario is we took that $24,000, that $2,000 a month that we're saving into that side investment account and just moved it down towards insurance. In order to balance out both sides of that system. And if I remember right, Mary, the way you did that, and we talked a little bit about this in the last podcast was, you did a roughly even split between the cost of the insurance and the money that you're putting in to go overfund it and make it work a little better. So tell me a little bit about that.
0: This one has a little bit of a different design. So I want to be really clear here. The only type of insurance you can use to accomplish the goals that, that we are talking about, the ones that have the guarantees that are needed in the contract to be able to do this is a whole life insurance policy. Right. And it's one of those things, sometimes I don't even like to say those words out loud because people have preconceived notions about how it's supposed to be used based on what their parents did or what somebody else told them that was an insurance person. But what we're actually doing is structuring these contracts in a different way so that you have flexibility in terms of how you fund them, which a lot of people don't realize you can do with a whole life insurance policy. But we're also seriously reducing the compensation that the agent receives, which is the other reason that you don't hear this talked about very often because most agents aren't going to voluntarily raise their hand and say I'd like to take a 50% pay cut in order to help out this other human being. <laughs> so knowing that this is how to structure these um I think is really important. This particular one um I did about 12,000 a year to the base premium and 10,000 a year to paid up additional insurance. So when you look at that If you think about base premium as sort of like the mortgage, it's what you have to pay every single year, and then the ten thousand is completely optional. Although I made the assumption that you did make that contribution every year, that extra payment uh, going into the policy. And the reason that I said it that way, as opposed to making the base smaller and the paid-up additions bigger, is because it allowed me to make level contributions at 24,000 every single year for 17 years without becoming a modified endowment contract, oh, which nice. would create adverse tax consequences that we don't want. And right. so I'm sure we've got another podcast floating all around about mm-hmm. how and why contracts can become modified endowment contracts. But if the only thing you know right now listening to this is that that's bad and we're avoiding tax consequences, I'm okay with that. Yeah, you win, so, you win. That's how I made the decision in terms of how to fund it. And what it does is if you fund it that way until age 67, your policy should be in a spot where it can sustain itself and you do not have to make further contributions after you retire. Right. And the death benefit is about million fifty, right. uh, And the cash value on the policy is about 508.
1: Right. and that And at that level, for those of you that can't see the screen, is that puts your accumulation engine, the market, and the distribution engine, the insurance at a roughly equal balance, right? They're, they're, they're at a rough parity. And that's where you get the maximum output on the other end. So, so Mary, walk, go ahead. I'm going
0: to add one thing real quick, Eric, because sure. if somebody is looking at the screen or they have the numbers in, the head, in their head, they might be like, Eric, you're crazy right now. Because if you look at the actual balance in the 401k at retirement, it's $1,431,595. Right. And if you look at the death benefit, it's a million fifty. So if you were just thinking about this at a surface level, you're going, that's not in balance at all. Those things are not equal, right. but what you have to factor green. in is the taxes, so if I were to pull a dollars out of my 401k and pay the taxes on that at 25%, what would be left over is roughly a million fifty. Right. And that's what the death benefit is. That's an after-tax number because death benefit is tax-free.
1: Right. Yeah, I just
0: thought tax. I'd throw that out there because otherwise someone might be watching like, these guys can't do math. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Where in what world is 1.4 and 1 million the same number? But thanks to that, right? Right here no,
0: with us. Thank you, IRS.
1: In a magical world. Um, so the, And the whole reason we want to go do that is because when you're at that, that parity, when you're at that balance, the income is the highest it can get. And so walk us through really quickly, because I know we're coming up on time the the reason that we want to go do that because there's really two big distribution strategies that come out we've talked a little bit about sort of the simulated pension and we've also talked about a a market shock absorber or a volatility buffer as you know two strategies that you can use to go make these things work together during retirement
0: Yeah. And I'm going to suggest that if you want to delve deeper into the idea of creating a simulated pension or a market shock absorber, that you go back to some previous podcast episodes where we go way, way, way in depth on how those things actually work. But at a very high level, what would happen in this scenario if you decided to create a simulated pension is that you would roll over that 401k balance of a million four into something called an income annuity. And the income annuity is basically saying I am trading access to my capital for a guaranteed income stream for the rest of my life. So this isn't something you would do at age 50, but it is something that you could consider doing at age 67. And then what happens is they're going to pay you at a specified fixed rate for the rest of your life, no matter how long you live. So there is zero risk of running out of money. And when you pass away, especially if you have a spouse who is dependent on that income stream, that's when that death benefit on the whole life insurance policy pays income tax-free and replaces the money that was in the income annuity so that the remaining spouse can have income continuity even after you're gone. Because the worst thing in the world is to lose your spouse and your income stream in the same day. If you already have to lose your spouse, at least the income stream is replaceable. Right. And if you're sitting there thinking my spouse might be replaceable to shame on you, I'm just going to say that out loud. (laughs) So here, um, so that's option one. Option two is what we call the market shock absorber. What happens in that scenario is that rather than moving the money to an income annuity, you just leave it invested where it is. And instead of pulling from it at a 3% rate, you're going to increase your pull rate to about 7%. And the reason you can do that is because anytime your balance drops below that initial 1,430,000 number, you're right. going to stop withdrawing from it. And instead, you're going to take your income from the cash value and the insurance policy until your investment portfolio gets back to hold. And then it is safe for you to switch back over and when you do that the likelihood of success at that seven percent withdrawal rate as long as you have about eight years of income after tax income sitting in the cash value of the life insurance policy is roughly similar to that three to four percent withdrawal rate
1: so let's take a look at the answer so what's the output
0: so based on today's interest rate so let's just Kind of regroup. If you did things the traditional way, you were at sixty-six thousand, almost sixty-seven thousand of income per year. If you save exactly the same amount of money and you do not work any harder and you do not take any additional risk, but you shift your focus to building an appropriate distribution income uh, engine and right. and maximizing or optimizing your income, then under the simulated pension option, which on my screen shows as a covered asset. Uh, you are at 107,000 of income per year. That's an extra $40,000 a year of income on the same savings rate with no additional risk. And if you do the volatility buffer or the market shock absorber option, those two things are interchangeable when we talk about them. they mean exactly the same thing. You end up at about 91, almost 92,000 of income.
1: And so what mo- what most people end up doing is some combination of the covered asset option and the volatility buffer option. And so for just easy math, the average of 107 and 91, those two options, the two incomes that you get from those options is right around hundred thousand dollars. So we're, we're right at that target distribution or that target income. And the crazy and the coolest thing about that, and the thing that I love most about this is that's a roughly $33,000 increase and what you get to spend every year without doing anything different. The other way to go say that is you increased your output by 50% over what you would have had just by being a little bit more efficient. And Mary touched on something earlier, which again, I thought was really brilliant. This idea of I'm saving 48 grand to get 66. And it's easy to look at those numbers, but but you you covered it well. It's easy to look at those numbers and go, man, that seems like a horrible deal. Like that, there's not much juice there. But it's 48 grand for 17 years in our scenario, and 66 grand for 25 to 30 years. And if you right. think about that on this side, another 30 grand, another $33,000 a year in retirement over 25 years is over $800,000 in money that you get to spend. And I'm and,
0: like, and you've got a death
1: benefit. And you get the death benefit. And. And to me, that's the, and we had this conversation earlier and we probably will bore the crap out of everyone because we've said it over and over again. But that that either or versus the and conversation, I think is one of the most overlooked but powerful conversations we have of, I don't have to make this horrible gut-wrenching Sophie's Choice level decision on, do I want to take care of my needs and have a really great, wonderful retirement? Or do I want to like bless the next generation? And it's not a it's not an either or binary choice. It is I get to do both.
0: It's it's an and. If yeah. you uh, very much would like to have your cake and eat it too, you need to look for strategies that will actually help you do that. And I think it goes again to if you're looking for scarcity, you will find it. If you were yeah. looking for abundance, you will find it. And yeah. so I I think this is you know the thing to think about here is that really in this strategy what we're saying is for every extra dollar you can save you're creating two for the rest of your life and mm-hmm. that 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 math makes a lot more sense than you know i'm saving a dollar to get a dollar
1: right or a dollar and you a know half or something yeah, yeah
0: whatever I mean, it is so it's the efficiency wanted- part of it right Yeah. We wanted to go through and make sure that you could see this and what we're going to do in our next episode. So please stay tuned is we are going to compare what it means to be 30 and what it means to be 50 when you are actually saving and help you see not just the data, but what does this mean? So that if you're listening today and you're like, yeah, well, I'm 30. So what does this mean for me? You don't want to end up in a situation where you're having to save so much more to get to the same spot. And if you're here and you're like, I'm 50, what what does it matter to me? What life would have been like had I done this at 30? If you've got kids, this is why you need to start having conversations with them. And so we're going to pull all this together, put it in a nice little bow. We have some little nuggets and surprises uh, just in terms of the data and what you'd have to do to break even in other scenarios. Um, But join us again next time. If you're looking for me, you can find me at The Wealth Woman, wherever you social media. Eric, where can they find you?
1: yeah and you can find me at economics with eric wherever you social media thank you See guys you next time.